This episode of the Italian Wine Podcast is brought to you by the new book, Sangiovese, Lambrusco, and Other Vine Stories. Researchers Attilio Scienza and Serena Mazio explore the origin and ancestry of European grape varieties in a tale of migration, conquest, exploration, and cross-cultural exchange. Hardback available on Amazon in Europe, Kindle version available worldwide. Find out more at italianwinebook.com. Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Warden. My guest today is Maureen Downey, founder of the San Francisco-based Shea Consulting. And that's it. It was a great interview. It's really nice to hear. Right, thank you so much. I'm out. <laughs> Go on, what is, what is Shea Consulting? And what is so Shea Consulting is a company that I started back in uh, 2005 after having spent a couple of years uh, working in auctions and realizing that what consumers really need is just a little bit of, of qualified advice. So um, while in auctions, I had I had already gotten the bug for spotting counterfeits but what I really wanted to do was go to work on behalf of not not the the vendors and the the auction houses, but the the individuals. And over to the stop last, stop it at source, basically. Well, you know what a lot of people just need is some advice about what they should be selling and what they should be buying. And you know, it's um, it's not always in their best interest to have an auction house or a vendor come in and tell them what they should sell. You know, when people buy a wine on a special trip to Italy or because it's their anniversary year, I think they should drink that. Um, it may be valuable, but um, not everything in life can be, um, you know, had a dollar sign put on. I think there's some intrinsic value. And a lot of times what people need is just a little bit of a, you know, it's okay to do that. It's okay to keep that special bottle and, um, you know, remember your husband or remember an anniversary or remember a special trip. So that was always a really important um aspect to me. The, the other part being that um, I think that a lot of times consumers get taken advantage of um, by the industry. We, you know, the wine and spirits industry is the most opaque industry in the world. Um, there's very little truth. There's very little real information. Um, and, and everybody has to rely on trust. And unfortunately, not all vendors are, um, are, are worthy of that trust. And some do a bad job, not because they mean to, but because they're not qualified to be doing what they're doing. So I wanted to go to work on behalf of, of collectors and make sure that their best interests were being looked after. So what was going wrong in the industry specifically? And what, and what time what time are we talking about so when this, this sort of is, fraud or counterfeit wine things started kicking off? This was back in, um, you know, I started working with collectors in 2000. And by 2005, I had realized that... Um, that there was just not a lot of infor- of, of highly informed uh, people out there. Um, there were a lot of people with money, but you know these are people who are oftentimes captains of industry, and they don't have the time to become experts uh, in 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 all aspects of wine. And you know traditionally there was a relationship between a merchant and a um, and a client, and that and that merchant would almost act as a mentor, teaching the client about wine over the course of several years. And with the rise of technology, what we've really seen is a move away from that kind of traditional relationship 
and you have a lot of people who have a lot of access to information. Everybody's an instant expert. Um, the role of the vendor has changed where, you know, we no longer have a couple of very big vendors who take things very professionally and seriously. You now have a whole world of, you know, black market brokers who often don't even ever see the wine that they're trading. They trade emails and collect money. So what I saw was that there were there was a need to step in on behalf of these people who really wanted to make sure that they were getting authentic wine of good provenance um, and that when they did decide to liquidate or they did have to liquidate because of death, disease, divorce, debt, all the Ds that cause people to sell wine, um, that they were looked after in, a, in an appropriate way in, in that situation as well. Okay, so, so that was starting roughly when? 2005, I started Shea Consulting. And um, the ramp up of counterfeit wine was really... Um, it was at a it was at a pretty strong point by 2005. We were aware, uh, abundantly aware of, of counterfeit wine in the wine industry um, as of 2000 to 2002. 2002 was the first time that I that I called out uh, specifically John Capon at Acre Maryland Condit, Rudy Kurniawan and Eric Greenberg as being people who were involved in the sale of, of counterfeit wine and, and knowingly so. Um, and of course, Rudy wasn't arrested until 2012. But um, by, by 2004, 2005, it was a known fact within the fine wine industry that Rudy Kurniawan and John Capon and Eric Greenberg um, and, a, and a couple of other of their colleagues were up to no good. Um, the press didn't cover it uh, because the press wanted to go to the big parties. And if they had covered it and exposed the fraud and protected consumers the way they're supposed to, they wouldn't have been got. They would not have gotten the invitation to the next DRC dinner, and they wouldn't have been able to drink the next fake 1945 Romane Conti that Rudy opened. So there was no um, there was no coverage, and at the time it was really frustrating for me because I continued to hammer on the fact that this was going on, and um, very few people in the industry took me seriously. Uh, Jancis Robinson in 2007 finally. Um, took me seriously and, and, and wrote an article about it in the Financial Times. Um, and then in 2008, Rudy had that Ponceau sale at Acker where um, Laurent Ponceau had to show up at the sale before John Capon would pull the counterfeit wine. If, if, if Laurent Ponceau had not shown up, John Capon would have sold it. It was not on the errata sheet, the addendum sheet. It had not been withdrawn from sale until he did so at the podium. So, you know, the shenanigans just kept going. Was that the wine that was actually never made? Ponceau actually yes. never, never made this wine. Exactly. And, and Laurent Ponceau had called John Capon to say, you can't sell this. And John had said, yeah, okay. But Ponceau got a very strong impression that Capon had no intention of pulling the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of wine uh, that Ponceau had pointed out. So he showed up at the sale. And it wasn't until somebody told John that, that Ponceau was at the sale that that they withdrew the wine. It's it's uh, it's actually worse than that. There were some of the bottles were actually in the room to encourage bidding. So um, yeah, the ca the carrots, dangling yeah, the carrots. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, th those kinds of shenanigans unfortunately didn't stop after the Ponceau sale. Um, you know, Christie's and, and Charles Curtis, who was at Christie's at the time, and Richard Brierley and a number of other people who continued to be, uh, you know, successful in the wine industry were were happy to continue to sell. Rudy's wine. Um, 
And, you know, right up until Rudy was arrested, there were still people who were willing to to work with him and sell his wine. And, you know, I, I was at the, the trial every day, and I can tell you Rudy did not put on a defense. So a lot of us believe that there is a, a large amount of hush money awaiting him in Hong Kong when he gets out in uh, in just a few months now uh, from To, from not, this to not rat on his um, Correct. Yeah, colleagues. Correct. He was in jail for quite a long time before the trial started because they the DOJ had actually wanted Rudy to roll on some of his um, co-conspirators who they thought were benefiting from the fraud a lot more than Rudy was. So if you look at it this way, Rudy is currently in jail you know, as an indigent um, uh, illegal alien, and there are people who have made tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars off of his fraud. The government was was highly interested in going after those people. But in order to prove fraud, you have to prove intent. And they had so much perfect evidence on Rudy without Rudy rolling on those other people, then you couldn't prove the intent. Right. Do you think they're ever going to be brought to book, these people? Um, I think that crooks are crooks. And crooks have a way of thinking that they are. I think there's a um, there's a pathology there where, um, you know, they believe they're above the law. You know, these are a lot of these people are heavily into drugs and prostitution and and other things that that kind of tell you that they believe they are above the law. The law does not apply to them. And so I don't think that they'll necessarily be brought down for wine fraud, but they will eventually get caught for something. We'll get right back to the Italian Wine Podcast after a quick reminder that this episode is made possible by the book Sangiovese, Lambrusco, and Other Vine Stories, available on Amazon in Europe and Kindle Worldwide. Yeah, I know, if I'd have done what you did, I, I probably wouldn't be sleeping at night. I'd be really paranoid about somebody coming after me, or well, not even just one, just others, more, more than one coming after me. Even the fact that the majority, it seems, of the people involved in the fraud are male, and you're obviously a female, and that, you know, just the male psyche would be even make them even more angry that yeah. they got done by, a, by a, an investigative uh, woman. Uh, how dare a girl how, ruin the party, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, how... Especially with this misogynistic crew that think that women exist for their pleasure, and I, here I am, mm. you know, pissing yeah, on pers- the campfire, yeah. I like to say. But how do you, I mean, how do you... Sleep easy. Um, you know, I sleep easy because I know that I've done the right thing. Um, I'm driven by integrity and and doing the right thing. And, um, you know, there is a reality that I have been physically accosted. I've certainly been verbally accosted. I was, you know, attacked online for 10 years when I was one of the solo voices saying that this fraud existed. Um, but I, I, I held firm. You know, there was even one point when my family said, you know, you got to let it go. Nobody cares about this fake wine stuff. And I was a little bit stampy and said, no, because it's wrong. It shouldn't happen. Um, but it, it has occurred that I've been physically accosted. And now when I go to big tastings, um, I often do have to take a bodyguard because um, I, you know, I just don't need to get beat up in a dress. So it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's the world that we live in. Um, and I am a little bit more cautious than probably most other people are. In, um, in public spaces, because I'm aware that um, even though there are a lot of people that are very appreciative about what I've, what I've done and what I've exposed and what I continue to do, there are also a lot of people who are very unhappy with me. So Understa- I, need to, of the- yeah, I need to be a little bit uh, wary of, of public interaction sometimes. It's terrible, though, isn't it? I mean, um, I can see why. I mean, these, these, are, these are 
you know, criminals who were stop at nothing, ruthless, you know, scumbags, yeah. basically. I actually went undercover for the FBI once, and uh, it was, you know, in, when I, in talking about it, I work very closely with the FBI. Do you in, have a wire America. on you as well? I did have a wire on me at that time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I work with, I've been working with it with a couple agents since 2008. So, you know, in talking about it, I didn't think anything of it. And then when the day actually came and they wired me up and there were multiple carloads of FBI agents in flak jackets and they all had their guns and stuff. I was like, when you were there in your t-shirt. Yeah. I was like, God, this, this is a big deal. You know, and there was a safe, you know, there was a passcode where if I had said a certain thing, they would have stormed the building. A safe word. Yeah. What was yours? Petrus? Uh, Bill's not going to like this. <laughs> those those feds, they got, they got a good sense of humor. Right? Yes. <laughs> okay. So um, how do you spot a fraudulent wine? What, what are the things to look for? So the, there, there are two main things that, that people need to understand about that. Um, number one, there's nothing that we can do from a photograph. So people are always sending in photographs and saying, oh, what do you think about this? There's nothing I can do with the photograph because we need to actually physically inspect the entire bottle. And we do so forensically. We, we, we have to use our eyes. We have to use our hands. Sometimes you have to smell it to see if it's been falsely aged in coffee or tobacco or tea. Um, but it's, it's really kind of more like a, looking at a piece of art. So it's a combination of low tech and high tech, um, you know, logic, pattern recognition, knowledge. We have an immense database that, that we utilize. Um, and we've built a software system now to go along with our, our anti-fraud solution, the Shea Vault, which authenticators can use. Um, and then we use a lot of, of more high tech, um, you know, microscopes and different types of lighting to look at the different chemical compounds and um, of paper, glass, glue. So there's a there's a forensic component, there's a high-tech component, and then there's a very low-tech component that just comes down to logic. Yeah, I mean, it's um, your toolbox is, is um, stuff that I would just never have thought of, and the glue for the label. I mean, of course that's a clue, isn't it? I mean, it's like a DNA almost. It, it actually, and it does, it does two things. It can tell you where the uh, glue was assembled, how the glue was assembled, or, or, you know, put on the bottle, and more importantly, when. So it, we can date glue very easily by doing some certain inspections. Um, you know, so if a bottle is supposed to be from the 1940s and it's got glue that would not have been possibly produced until probably the 1970s, you got an issue. Mm. So I often like to say that it's like looking at, uh, you know, a person that has a 25-year-old face on a 75-year-old body. You know, there's been some work done. So yeah. it's our job to figure out what that is. So I remember writing a book and having to contact, I mean, I'll name it, Domaine de la Romani Conti, some original labels that, for, that photographed for the book. And I got a very nice email from Aubert de Villain. He said, no problem, I'll send you the labels. Do please send them back to me. Of course, I did send them back. And um, and you think it's so funny. You know, it's like, uh, for me, it's just a label for a book, a piece of, you know, that no one's going to read. But for you, it could cost you a lot of money in terms of reputation because bottles of wine that are filled with beetroot juice are posing as DRC. Well, and if you look at, you know, the way the technology is today, you could take that label and, you know, scan it and put it into a computer and turn it into, you know, 10,000 bottles. You know, that would give you everything that you need to, to know. So um, it's very important that those things not get shared. And, you know, that's why there's such a, a huge market for empty bottles, say, on eBay. And things like that. So, wow. yeah, it's kind of sad that we have to think like criminals, yeah. but but we do. 
Um, and so, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to stay a step ahead, and that's, you know, that's Can you do that? I mean, what is the next step ahead that you've got to think about? What have you got, have you got up your sleeve? What's the next area of weakness for the fine wine trade? Well, so one of the things that I think that's happened recently that's really sad, it was done in the proper spirit, but there has been a move away from plate press, traditional plate press printing, and some of the more traditional ways of, of making, um, producing the actual bottles. Um, towards more high-tech ways of digital printing so that people can use anti-fraud and they can print invisible ink. Unfortunately, counterfeiters can also print digital ink, and they have already started counterfeit printing all of these cosmetic solutions. So recognizing that cosmetic solutions are not a long-term fix, recognizing that most of the solutions that are out there today um, are only solutions at the, at the vintage level, not at the bottle level, and that they do nothing really to inform a consumer about the authenticity of a wine before they purchase it. Um, we came up with, my, my team and I have come up with over the years, a solution that we're calling the Shea Vault. So Shea, of course, means seller. Vaults, it's a digital vault of, of your seller. And what we do here is um, we layer on top of anything that a producer's already doing. But I, because I believe any solution needs to be layered. Anything that's, that's, that's one layer is not enough. Um, just having invisible ink on your label means that somebody could refill the bottle and substantiate the bottle. Just having a proof tag doesn't stop somebody from core eventing a bottle and refilling it. And furthermore, both of those things mean that you have to be in front of the bottle in order to prove that it's authentic. Almost no wine currently gets purchased in proximity to the bottle. Almost everything gets purchased online, via auction, as futures. So we wanted a solution that would empower consumers to know, um, and vendors as well, that they were purchasing authentic bottles. And the other thing that's really important is, is provenance. Because an authentic bottle that is, is poor provenance um, is just as bad sometimes to the producer as a counterfeit bottle. Anything that shows poorly is not good. So we have created the solution such that um, online, prior to purchase, somebody can view a ledger of authenticity and provenance that is blockchain secured, um, which tells them the known provenance of the bottle um, and that it's been authenticated. It's got a picture of the actual bottle, the condition of the bottle at, that, at the time of sale, so whenever the bottle is presented for sale, and the signature of the authenticator who authenticated it. And that person is personally taking responsibility for the authenticity of that bottle. So currently those signatures would be myself, uh, Siobhan Turner and, and, Hugh, and Hugo Doubt from my team, and a couple of the other authenticators that have already passed our authentication training, like Damon Young in, um, in Hong Kong and Etienne Pommier uh, just outside of Geneva in France. So, so how long does it take to, to get, if I was signed up to the course, how long would that take me to? to... Uh, it would depend on you. So Siobhan Turner, who was the executive director of the Institute of Masters of Wine, for uh, I believe eight years before she joined us, invigilates the program. It's eight online modules, which are about three hours each of presentation, a number of assignments and whatnot. At the end of a module, you'd have a, a conversation with her to make sure that you understood everything. And it also gives the trainee an opportunity to ask questions. And then there are two uh, different times uh, where the trainees have to work with us in a real life setting for like a week. So if they have a venue, we'll go and authenticate for them. But it's really a lot of hands-on and 
You know, there needs to be as it's it's as much art as science. So there needs to be logic. There needs to be pattern recognition. There needs to, you know, it's not something you could take a you know a written test and pass and you're ready to go. You got to get a feel, right? Yeah, we need so to really understand that. So when you say pattern recognition, that. sorry, what does that what does that mean? Well, if if, you, if if I'm in your program and you say, Monty, you're a great student, but your pattern recognition sucks. If your pattern recognition sucks, you're not going to be able to notice when something is different. So if you've got five things that are the same and one of them is slightly different and that doesn't jump out to you, then you're probably not suited to be a very good authenticator. So you're saying like six bottles, all with, say, Chateau de Tour 1950, right. whatever it is, and then one of them has got a little bit of a... It's just different from the others. Yeah. It's, it could be a tiny bit of the, the, the... The ink could be just a slight different color. Or the font could be slightly different. Yeah. Yep. So you got to pick that up. Yeah. And you got to pick that up in the small details, not just the big details. So that's the type of pattern recognition. And, and that's how I really started because in, in the olden days, you know, back in the early 2000s, um, wine auctions were not common in America. Um, they only became legal in New York in, in 96 and only started oh, in 98. Amazing. Yeah. So I started in 2000. So I was kind of in the nascent, it was a nascent industry at the time. And people had been sold cases of wine by, um, you know, by people like rural wine merchants who would take four bottles of Petrus out and replace them with counterfeits. Most collectors would never put all 12 bottles up and look at them at once. So they'd have a bottle and they'd be, oh, it's the greatest wine ever. And then a few months later, they'd have another one and it wouldn't be so good. And they'd chalk it up to bottle variation. It wasn't until people started selling wine and we put all 12 bottles up at once that we went, hang on, you know, consistently there are four bottles that are counterfeit in these cases. So we saw the pattern of the pattern and, you know, that helped lead ultimately Bill Koch to prosecuting or winning a good suit against uh, rural wine merchants. And, and other, you know, there are a lot of other merchants out there who are guilty of this, but these are the types of patterns that you need to be able to see. And it needs to not only be when it's right in front of you. When you've seen enough authentic, um, you know, 1982 Petrus, when you see another one, if it if there are things that are strange about it, that should jump out to you. So that's you know the logic and the pattern recognition are very important skills. I have a little bit of OCD and a very fierce memory. That's a great combo for for a wine authenticator. I mean, you're you know I've never interviewed anybody like you before. I have to say, I, mean, I've, I know we contacted each other ages ago, email or whatever it was. Um, I mean, you, you, you. I mean, you are incredibly brave. I mean, brave in two senses. I mean, brave to do what you do, um, basically telling the industry you suck, and brave to do what you do because you got some ext- extraordinarily nasty people out there that would stop at nothing to damage you or hurt you physically or or whatever. And, and not only that, you're standing. Well, I would say thank you. Well, you're standing up to that, and also. You're not only complaining about the situation, about the lamentable record that the wine industry has got on on this on this particular issue, and it is lament, lamentable. But you're actually finding coherent, logical solutions that you can you can adapt, uh, and that you can teach people so that we get a generation of wine merchants who do their job, who do what they're supposed to do. If you're a wine merchant, you should really know this shit. And um, um, I could not agree more. And um, you know, and it's funny when you talked about 2000, I won't go into too many specifics, but I remember that for me, that was almost like a, almost everything that we were reading then, it was still just before the internet really kind of exploded, if you want to call it that way, in terms of wine content. And there was a small fishbowl of little fish swimming around providing you content in written form. And be very careful what I say. Um, you know, I've worked in Bordeaux and I've worked on the inside of Bordeaux and da 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 da. 
And I did read some stuff. I think this is can't. This is just not. Doesn't make sense to me. This one. Maybe I'm being skeptical or cynical as I am. I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm a little bit cynical. But I thought, that's a bit odd. Um, so you're way ahead of the game, and um, I mean your your work is never gonna, never going to be ending because as soon as you come up with one solution, blockchain or wherever it is, those POSs are going to come at you yeah. with another another tactic or to, to get yeah. around the, the security. It's, um, you know, this the, the one of the things that we recognize about the Shea Vault is, you know, just like the software that we've built to support it, um, you know, you don't you don't do that and it's done. You know, this is this is not a, a one and done. This is a constant evolution. I think it helps that I come from Silicon Valley. Um, you know, my father was one of the original designers of the integrated circuit, so I've seen... What's that? Just remind everybody. The computer chip. <laughs> uh, like, you know, there's Intel and AMD, and my dad was one of the founders of AMD. And um, But he actually, you know, in the 1950s, he was working on, um, you know, photo recognition of of, um, of numbers and letters so that, so that car, uh, checks could be read. So, you know, he's been working on optical stuff and... Um, and then he got into, you know, semiconductor, um, but he, he actually patented a couple different semiconductors while he was working at GE or Fairchild. But the point is that I come from a place where, you know, I recognize innovation and whatever is, um, whatever is good today is going to be fodder for school children tomorrow. Um, you know, we, when I was a kid, people, we had Rubik's Cubes and now my friends have kids who are making, um, robots to solve the Rubik's Cube, right? So so I recognize that whatever we've got today, it needs to be constantly updated all the time. And we're working with a software company to make sure that happens. And we're making sure that the hardware aspects that we're using are going to be constantly updated. And we just have to keep, um, you know, logical and try to keep ahead of the crooks. One of the things that I hope happens as a result of this is uh, a little bit of a stratification of the industry in that the good guys... I've been screaming about the bad guys for a long time, and they're still thriving. So maybe now if we give the tools, if, if, if we create the tools and, and the good guys can use the tools and they can be seen by consumers and by other people in the trade as using the tools, we can have, a, you know, an industry of good guys and then an industry of smarmy guys. And, you know, if price is more important to you than provenance and authenticity, you know where to go. Um, if you want, you know, to work with with upstanding people and and wine of good provenance, you know where to go. So I'm hoping that that that, that we can at least create that much of a differentiation. Yeah, final question. I mean, you've got. I mean, everything that you know, you've shared with other people. I mean, if you get hit by a bus, it's not like all your knowledge about this is is going to going to get lost. Because if you know, I don't want to get hit by a bus. Yes. But, I mean, but I mean, you're dealing- I'd rather say if I win the lottery and move to an island. Okay. Well, yes. if you win the lottery and move to an <laughs> island, um, you know, did, 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 does all your knowledge your knowledge will still be available for everybody? I know. So I'm trying, um, but you know, people ask me that a lot of time. Like, is you know, is there anything that's in your head that's not on paper? And unfortunately, there is a lot of it. But I try to work with my colleagues and and train people and. You know, one of the the aspects of the Shea Vault that's so good for the authenticators is that um, all of my database and all of my learnings are going to be, because winefraud.com has a very small amount of information. I mean, it's still got like 50,000 images and we're, we're redoing it and there will be even more. But there's so much more that we can't share with the public that only authenticators can know. So I'm in the process of trying to uh, to download that all out of my brain. Um, but at least the there, you know, if I do end up on that island, 
there are at least a good number of people who have a really good start. It's interesting what you say about your father, about what he did. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I come from, I'm a Silicon Valley kid, so. I had no idea. Yeah. That's so I, I think I learned most of my uh, my bad swear words as a kid, listening to my father complain about, because in the early 80s, the Japanese um, counterfeiting, you know, the, the circuits before AMD could even get them off the line. So, um, you know, counterfeits are something that I grew up uh, with an aversion to. Um, and then, you know, I think getting beat up by my two older brothers all the time made me strong. So, okay. Put all of that together and you get me today. Yeah, well, I'm very pleased to have met you, I have to say. Thank you. Um, me too. Absolutely. An interview that's both um, inspiring and terrifying. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's, um, it's the flip side of the industry. And, um, but I've never met anybody that, that, that actually, you've got to have physical bravery. I mean, to get wired up by the FBI and, you know, um, that is not, not the normal part of a wine merchant's beat. No. It really is not. It's out of, it's just out of, you know, it's like asking a baker to jump out of a parachute, you know, with a plane and a parachute every morning before he goes, or she goes to work. It's just like, why would I just want to do that? Yeah. Well, but there's so many baddies in the industry that we really need to do something about them. So, you know, I'll take one for the team. Okay. Maureen Downing, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Um, I'm sure we will meet again. I do hope so. Um, Yeah, you're an incredible lady. Thank you. Yeah, amazing. I always give applauds to... You know, safe little wine writer sitting at home with a lovely warming little laptop and writing <laughs> icky picky little articles about God knows what. That's just uh, the kind of that's like the parasites, which is what we are. And you're not. You're um, you're somebody that's making sure that the food, in this case, liquid, is is clean and clear. Well done, you. That's the goal. Thank you. Super, super, super. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Listen to all of our pods on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and on ItalianWinePodcast.com. Don't forget to send your tweets to at ItaWinePodcast. What is it and what does it do? Did I get it wrong? Shay. Shay is French for seller. Shea Vault. Ah, wonderful. Shea Consulting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Like Le Maitre de Shea. So it's Shea I used to be a Maitre de Shea. So oh, well, there you yeah. go. <laughs> so, uh, okay, let's do that again. <laughs> <laughs>